0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce our latest guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. Sari, we have my good friend, Kristen Welker, on the show this week, and I know you're going to love her.
1: I already do, but it's for some (laughs) selfish reasons in that we have a lot in common, actually. Um, So Kristen, like me, is from the Philly area, and she also started her career as a local news reporter in small town markets across the country, which I also did. Now, she's obviously one of the most respected anchors and White House correspondents at NBC News, so a little bit different, but I do feel a kinship with her.
0: I look forward to when you uh, moderate a presidential debate, which would <laughs> be about 10 years if you're on the Walker uh, exactly. track. Exactly,
1: I'm on the Walker track. I feel it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And as someone who worked with her from the Obama White House, Clinton campaign, uh, I've known for about 10 years, I think you're just going to really appreciate hearing more about just how indefatigable she is and how much confidence she has. For sure. That's a lot for us to learn. And NBC just named her and Peter Alexander, who is also her co-host on the Weekend Today show, the co-chief correspondents for the White House for NBC News, and they call themselves the Joint Chiefs, which I find hilarious.
1: So funny. <laughs> so good. I feel like most people who don't know her from NBC – probably recognize her as the moderator of the final presidential debate last year between Biden and Trump. She was only the second Black woman ever to moderate a presidential debate. The first was Carol Simpson in 1992. So it wasn't just a milestone in her own life, but in our countries too.
0: It's amazing that it was almost 30 years in between the two. We had the late Gwen Ifill, who's a fantastic journalist. She moderated a vice presidential debate solo, but Kristen was the first woman to do that for a presidential debate since 1992.
1: She got all sorts of praise for the way that she handled it, especially after the one before it was a little messy. And even the former president himself complimented her in real time.
0: And by the way, so far, I respect
1: very much the way you're handling this, I have to say. By the way. But somebody should ask. Yeah, I was I was surprised
0: because I when I saw Trump walk over to address Kristen, I was like, oh my God, what is he going to say to her? But Right, you're as worried about out, stalking. <laughs> as it turns out, he was complimenting her for a job well done, which it was. We'll definitely get into how her unique perspective shaped this debate question, especially one uh, sitting around race. And I want to ask her what inspired her to be a journalist in the first place and how she made that all happen for herself she went from being a intern at the today show to being the weekend mm-hmm. anchor of the today show relatively short amount of time
1: how she's scrappy that's what you said
0: she is so scrappy so so scrappy
1: all right should we get into it
0: let's do it Kristen welker yay welcome to just something about her super excited you're here Thank you, Jen. I'm excited to be
2: here. Thank you for having me. What an honor.
0: I wanted to have you on, but then particularly after your unbelievably stellar, tough debate performance, there are a lot of lessons in your life and also how you operate in the workplace, but how you handled that moment that I think would be applicable for women across the board. So I want to like delve into all that. So thanks for doing it. Let's delve into all of it. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> so the first debate, just to remind our viewers, was the debacle <laughs> debate with that Chris Wallace and moderated where no, Trump just kept interrupting this. Biden. that
2: because, because, because the question is, the question Supreme is, Supreme is just as the radical, question, radical left.
1: Is, Will you shut up, on, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your right.
0: So, Not like it was I like think, Biden's greatest, so greatest performance either, but like the Trump stuff was like off the rails. And I just remember being like, oh, my God, Kristen must be freaking out. <laughs> what did you think then, like watching that first debate, knowing you were like, going to have to go in? Did you want it to be canceled where well, you're like, oh, my God, maybe they'll cancel the third debate. I want to do this.
2: First of all, just to give you a sense of how many people were terrified for me yesterday, I went to my dentist and he was like, I was so terrified for you. <laughs> Literally every person who I know was terrified. What was I thinking watching that first debate? I thought I have covered then-President Trump for four years. I'd covered then-Vice President Biden for six years. And I just talked myself through it every day, which was to say, Kristen, you have interviewed both of them. You have been in press conferences with both of them. The questions you have are just as relevant as the questions that anyone else would have. These are good questions, have confidence in them, have confidence in yourself and listen, 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 listen. That is the most important lesson and most important thing about being a journalist is to listen and to know when your question has not been answered. Did I have moments of watching that first debate and thinking, oh my goodness, how am I gonna
0: do this? Yes,
2: but frankly, I had that feeling before the
0: first debate so mm-hmm. right right, <laughs> it didn't, right. under yeah. any circumstances for any journalist yes. any candidates moderating a presidential debate is terrifying terrifying
2: it's the greatest honor of my mm-hmm. life and will go down as the greatest honor of my life and it was also the most intimidating thing i've ever done and i remember when janet brown from the debate commission called me and she asked me to do the debate And I said to her, you know, my gosh, I would be honored. And who's going to co-anchor the debate? And she's like, (laughs) she's like, no, there's no co-anchor. It's just going to be you. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, And I had to really talk myself, you know, through this entire process. That is the reality. And I think it's important for people to know that it was like anything else. You're like an athlete. Training for the big game, so I was working on the debate from like six a m in the morning, often until late at night. You know, I exercised a lot, oh really, I meditated
0: you you gave John your husband your phone, right? John was in charge of your phone i no,
2: no, no, i didn't give John my phone. John and my producer took my phone <laughs> <laughs> I gave it to them, kicking and screaming and complaining all the and they said you're not you are looking at your phone you're looking through headlines. You're four days from this debate. Give us the phone. So they confiscated my phone for all of the hours that I was prepping. Yeah. And I couldn't focus on who was saying what about me or about the debate or about whatever was going to happen. I just had to focus on the content. And that, I think, made all the difference. And I also I will tell people this whenever you're doing a really big or intimidating thing, there's the moment that you actually have to do it. So there's the like anticipating it, which can be worse. Right. But then there's the actual moment. And I just thought to myself, okay, how are you going to prepare for that moment? What are you going to do with those two minutes that you're going to sit down before the candidates come out? And I had walked through those two minutes every day, multiple times a day. And I had a routine so that when I actually walked out, it was a long walk, Jen, <laughs> from from the dressing room to the debate hall. Oh, my God. Did you want to vomit? I will say this. There's so much anticipation that that whole week I just ate
0: rice, basically. So what was your routine for those two minutes when you walked out?
2: Okay. So my routine, and this is where the meditating came into play, so I highly recommend it for anyone who has anything big and scary to do. My routine was you're going to open your notes. And your questions, make sure you can see the first question because I didn't want to be nervous and then not open the book. I mean, that's something you can do. So I opened my binder with my questions, made sure I had the paper of remarks that I was going to make. It was in the teleprompter, but I also had it written out, which is, you know, just a short introduction. Yeah. Make sure my pen is in hand. My papers are next to me for notes. I'm getting nervous talking about I'm getting <laughs> nervous. I'm
0: getting nervous for you. <laughs> I'm like
2: having flashbacks to it. And then drink lots of water. And then this is where the meditating comes in. Just take a couple of deep breaths. And I did that. And I, I was like, okay, you have your breath. Let's go. You can br-. and, and I just kept saying to myself, if you get the first five words out, you're golden. That's it. It's just sometimes about moving through that moment of fear basically. And when I sat down and went through my routine, it was just a routine. And again, I had just visualized it so many times in my head. And then when the two of them walked out, I was like, right, these are the two people I've been covering for years. I know the two of you. Right. And by the way, that's where the preparation comes in, because that's not preparation that you do for a couple of weeks. That's years of work yes. that went into covering both of them
0: right? So you hadn't ever done anything at that level, but you knew that the preparation that you'd put into all the work you had done for years and years and years was giving you the sort of fortitude, strength, knowledge, confidence at that moment.
2: That's exactly right. That everything I had done leading up to that moment prepared me for that moment and made that moment possible. And I also kept thinking to myself, this is going to be the most fascinating conversation you'll ever have. So just enjoy it. Sometimes it's about reminding yourself that terrifying thing that you're about to do. It's the thing you've always wanted to
0: do. So remember to enjoy it while you're doing it. You seem to. I did. So I read that when you were preparing for the debate, the very first question you wrote was the one about the talk that Black and brown parents have to have with their children.
2: All right. Let's talk about our next section, which is race in America. And I want to talk about the way black and brown Americans experience race in this country. Part of that experience is something called the talk. It happens regardless of class and income. Parents who feel they have no choice but to prepare their children for the chance that they could be targeted, including by the police, for no reason other than the color of their skin. Mr. Vice President, in the next two minutes, I want you to speak directly to these families. Do you understand why these
0: parents fear for their children?
2: i do i do
0: we We haven't talked about this, but is that true mm-hmm. is, is that really the first question you wrote? That's right.
2: I wrote that question probably three days after I got assigned to the debate, and it mm-hmm. not because I had any I, I need to start working on the debate. It wasn't because of that. I literally just sat down and it came out of me. It is the, the question that has been in my head. I really wanted to hear the answer to that question. And what strikes me about it and that I will share, and I've shared this in some form in various interviews, but there have been various versions, there were various versions of the talk. We called it the talk question right. throughout the process. And there were moments that we threw it out all together. When we said, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. We're not going to ask it. It's not going to land. It's not sharp enough. It's not strong enough. Mm-hmm. It's not crisp enough. And we always kept coming back to it. We kept What we kept doing, actually, we kept kind of rewriting it in the traditional formulation of what that question would be, mm-hmm. which is some statistics and then a very straight answer. And I kept saying the problem with that formulation for the question is that it's not in any way getting these two candidates to do what I want them to do, which is to speak to the pain that these families feel and the fear and the fact that for so many families, this does feel like a moment of crisis. And it's not getting to that emotional core that I wanted to tap into Mm -hmm. And so that's why we kept throwing it out and let's do it the traditional way. And well, in this year, X amount of people, you know, and going through the statistics. And when you throw a bunch of statistics out, you get a certain type of answer. And sometimes that's the appropriate way to ask a question, by the way. Sometimes that's the exact right way, but it just never felt right. And so we kept coming back to it. And I'm so glad that we did because I think it was one of the moments that people really related to. And for some people, they found that to be a revealing moment.
0: Well, and the fact that as a woman of color that you held on to that question Mm -hmm. for the debate Mm -hmm. and wanted to ask it in the way that you did, not in terms of stats, but as in terms of, these are what, you know, what do you wanna say? I mean, I'm gonna cry now just thinking about it because it was like, what are you gonna say Mm -hmm. to these families? And you're like, oh, it's such a personal thing. It's like these families Mm -hmm. sitting around their dinner table, that's what they have to talk about. They have to talk about their sons being at risk of being killed by the police. Exactly.
2: And you're right. And that's why that question was, again, it it just came out of me. I mean, it didn't even, you know, it, it was a part of me to ask that question. And I think that we've all had our own version of that conversation. Certainly, I had that version of that conversation with my parents. And I just remember, you know, reading about the civil rights movement, reading about the sacrifices of women of color who came before me, including my mom and my grandmother, Mm -hmm. and bringing that to my work on a conscious and unconscious level. And I think that's one of those moments where it's just in me. And it's just something that I wanted to bring to the table for no particular reason, but also because it's a part of who I am.
0: It's why it's nice to have Chris Wallace moderate debates, but it's good to have people who don't look like Chris Wallace also moderate debates. You know, this is like you get different questions when you have diversity in journalism and journalism and have all perspectives represented.
2: One of the things that strikes me when you think about who's in the press corps right now covering yeah. the Biden administration, three of the chief White House, well, four, Caitlin Collins, Cecilia Vega, Nancy, myself, mm-hmm. we're all women. And that's, incredible. And, and there are yeah. obviously so many women of color who are thriving right now at the White House and, and in journalism, Yamiche, Abby. And that, by the way, is a change from when I first got to the White House 10 years True. ago. Yeah, It's a huge change from when Andrea Mitchell was at the White House. And I think about some of the things that she had to endure and the fact that she really was one of the few women in all of Washington covering politics and, and the, what it meant that she paved the way for me to sit in the briefing room and in the front row of the briefing room. But I remember when I was there during former President Obama, there was diversity, but it just keeps getting more diverse. And I think that, and, and obviously, it does. We the have, pipeline's working. Yes. I do think NBC is doing a really good job of that. I mean, we have a very diverse White House team,
1: mm-hmm. and I'm
2: so proud of that. But obviously there's always room for improvement on all levels, but it's about making sure that young women are not falling through the cracks when they first enter whatever field it is they're passionate about and that they're pursuing.
0: Yeah. I've read that you've said before that growing up biracial, your mom is African-American and your dad is white, that your parents told you that people might treat you differently and that being part of both of those worlds is one reason why you became a journalist. Is is that right?
2: Yes. And I think that it was part of my desire to communicate. And I think it's part of why I inherently have wanted to be able to communicate with various different types of people to find that connection. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested not just in politics, but in cultural issues, issues related to race and this kind of very multicultural America in which we find ourselves yeah. right now. And that I think is a part of it. And I would, you know, sit at the dinner table and talk to my parents and talk to talk, them. Talk, we would talk about these issues related to race and culture. And I just thought if we're having these conversations at our dinner table and they're so educational and informative to me, why not bring this to the forefront, not just through my work, but just in terms of being in the arena. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think that that was one of the things that inspired me to want to communicate with people and to want to help people understand this multicultural world in which we live now.
0: All right, it's time for a quick break, but stay tuned to hear why Kristen and I spent so much time together during her early days reporting on the Obama White House. That's next on Just Something About Her with Kristen Welker. And we're back with our guest, Kristen Welker, on Just Something About Her. We just talked about her debate performance last year, but let's go back a little farther. I wanted to go back to when we first met. Did you come to the White House in 11 or 12 to cover the Obama White House for NBC?
2: I came to the White House in 2011. Yes, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. If you weren't going to bring this up, I was going to.
0: (laughs) And explain where you came from, like your previous jobs. What had you been doing? You got hired by NBC in 2011 to cover the Obama White House, right?
2: Well, I actually got hired by NBC in 2010, and I was a general assignment correspondent in Burbank. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of our training ground for correspondence. And I think it's important to point out that prior to that, I'd spent 10 years, so about a decade in local news, Redding, California, Providence, Rhode Island, Philadelphia, my hometown. I started filling in on MSNBC, doing little news cut-ins, filling in overnight on the overnight news. And then there was a tryout in Burbank. And I raised both hands and said, I want to go. I want to go. A tryout to go to Burbank? A tryout to actually just to be a correspondent. So a correspondent based in Burbank. So that was okay. the tryout. It was a summer tryout, got the job. And then I was in Burbank for a year. And then I came to D.C. And I literally, Jen, for my entire career in journalism, would tell anyone who would listen, I want to cover the White House. That's my goal in life, to cover the White House. So that basically meant I got to cover a lot of local news stories. And right. I did cover the Pennsylvania primary when I was in Philadelphia. So I got to interview then Senators Clinton and McCain and Obama. But I'd never covered politics on the national right. stage. And so I got to Washington after a year of having been at the network. And I was a little green. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> and I had a lot but very to learn. determined
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was I was very determined, and this is where you come in. So you got to the White House and you'd obviously worked in a number of administrations, and you were very generous with your time because I would spend, you know, quite an extensive amount of time in your office asking you. A million different questions peppering you with questions. And that's really how I started to understand politics. So important that people understand that, that part of my journey to understanding politics was sitting in your office and asking you questions and and trying to figure out exactly what was going on. A lot of questions. (laughs) Endless questions (laughs) about any and every topic,
0: right? People should understand just sort of the geographically what it's like to be either press staff or press in the White House. Like if you're looking at the West Wing to your left, there's like a long skinny room and that is the White House briefing room. It used to be a pool. Literally, there is still a pool underneath the floor It was an indoor swimming pool. And then you all are cramped behind the briefing room in these like (laughs) hideous. Honestly, I'm, I'm surprised they passed some sort of, you know, OSHA standard booths with no light poor <laughs> peter alexander had a mouse like fall onto his laptop <laughs> but yeah. uh and then there are two press offices there's it's called lower press where there's like more junior press assistants, and then there's upper press where the press secretary during obama the communications director deputy communications director would sit up there and i was just so impressed and i think this is a good lesson for all women you came in You had a lot of reporting experience and anchoring experience. You didn't have any political experience. And you just barreled up every day to upper press, just (laughs) demanding to be heard and get our time and get our attention and ask really good questions. And the (laughs) verve with which you did your job in the White House during a bomb, and I guess this is carried over, had earned you the nickname of (laughs) Welk-NATO. You have to remember it's ten years ago, so yeah. Explain Welk NATO. So okay, good. so
2: Welk NATO is Peter Alexander's nickname for me, which of course is a combination of Welker, my last name, and Shark NATO. It's a storm. That's what's driven them all up north. I've never seen so many of them so bold.
0: I mean, if, if people remember Shark NATO, like I'm not sure if people remember Shark NATO. It was a tornado that was so fierce that it like sucked up sharks
1: just can't sit back and watch this
2: something like that but it's this idea of a shark that's completely spun up
0: i think is the best way
2: (laughs) to describe it and so meanwhile the nickname has stuck i know everyone at NBC just calls me nato
0: Welcome, NATO, and then sometimes I get a warning from either Stacey Klein, who's one of the White House producers, or Shauna Thomas, who was a White House producer at the time, and they would call me and be like, "Look out, welcome NATO, Cat Five headed your way." (laughs) 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 Oh gosh, I was just so impressed because I was like, "Here's this relatively young woman, doesn't have political experience, just like barreling in to the White House press secretary's office, White House communications director's office." And in a nice way, because everybody loved working with you. Well, thank you. Just like doing your job with like a lot of zeal and like, I need time and I need you to explain this to me and asking lots of questions. You know, is that the same approach that you had with all of your jobs? I mean, I noticed you said that when NBC had an opening for Burbank, you raised both hands, right? Not just, not just one hand. You said, I raised both hands. Like, have you always been like this? Where does it come from? not to be a cliche, but I have to give credit to my parents.
2: My parents yeah. are two people who are incredibly passionate. They're very passionate about the work that they do. My father's an engineer. My mother's a realtor. She also ran for city council
0: right.
2: when I was growing up. She didn't win, but that was really my first introduction to politics. Mm-hmm. And my
0: parents just love Philly politics, politics you know, too, up- which is like quite an education. Philly
2: politics. Yes. Which is Philly politics is tough. Yeah. And she ran against John Street, who was a city councilman at the time. And now, of course, they've got a very cordial relationship and everyone's a part of kind of the small Philadelphia political community. But at the time they were political rivals and he was in city council and she was trying to unseat him.
0: That's a bold move for particularly a woman at that time,
2: a woman and a woman of color. I mean, I remember listening to radio interviews with her and people asked her why she would run to unseat, you know, an African-American man. Mm -hmm. Was she splitting up the black vote? And she had to answer those questions. She had to answer all sorts of tough questions. And so I remember just being so proud of her for being brave and being passionate. And she had a vision for the city in the way that she thought she wanted to improve it. And she was completely fearless. And I always try to bring that with me into everything I do. Her name's Julie, right? Julie Welker. Yes. Julie, channeling um, Julie. Channeling Julie. Right, exactly. And she just had so much strength. I think my dad was always so supportive of her. And the two of them were just always really passionate about their community. There was like no other option but for me to find a way to be engaged in our political discourse. And for me, the way that that feels the most comfortable is being a journalist. And why did you choose that? There's the part of it that I can explain. And then the part that I can't explain, I've always, always wanted to be a journalist. And one of my childhood friends always wanted to be a veterinarian. And we would play with her stuffed animals and then write stories about them in the newspaper and i remember this because for my wedding she gave me framed oh copies of these newspapers so it was really amazing and also nonsensical but then i think because there was always so much discussion about politics and our community at the mm-hmm. dinner table that i always just wanted to know more and i always wanted to ask questions it's just about right. asking questions and I loved it and I love that engagement and engaging with people. And I also saw some of the questions that my mom got. Oh. Mostly from talk radio. I mean, the journalists in Philadelphia were really good journalists and so I think they did a fair job of covering, you know, her campaigns when she ran for city council, but I remember listening to some of these interviews with some of these talk radio hosts and just thinking doesn't this race and this moment deserve better questions, questions that are really aimed at getting to the heart of the issue. And if you're going to ask these types of questions, which is not to say that, look, if voters want answers to those questions, ask those questions. But you want to yeah. ask those really tough questions from a place of compassion and, and of really listening and trying to get the honest answer. But yeah, I just bring that same level of passion and have brought that to every job that I do. And, and I, it just is something that I think is inherent in me because of my parents. And they still work like seven days a week, Jen, and they're both in their 70s, so.
0: (laughs) And when you were an intern at the Today Show, did you ever think that you would be an anchor there?
2: I guess on some level, it's every Today Show intern's dream, but I never in a million years thought about it realistically. And, And I think because I wanted to cover politics, I was so focused on that. But I do think part of the path of getting there is like always having your hand raised. Uh huh. I mean, I just said yes to every opportunity. And pushed for more? Absolutely. I mean, that's such an important part of it. How would you do that? I think some women have a hard time doing that. Like literally, what did that look like? I'm so glad you asked this question because it's it's such an important question. I will say, you know, my little soapbox part of this is I I do think and and I hope and I think we're doing a better job of this across the board. But part of this is making sure that we are mentoring and supporting women. At all levels. So when an intern comes in and expresses real passion and excitement, whether it's journalism or politics or whatever, like to make sure there are ways to support her through her journey.
0: Did you feel like there weren't ways to support you or that there were?
2: I felt like there were. I mean, journalism is a very tough business and I felt like there were, but I definitely was very aggressive at seeking them out as well. And I got to Redding, California, which is a do it yourself news station. So I did all my own camera work. I physically edited the tape. Mm -hmm. I anchored the weekend news. So I like wrote the weekend news. I physically edited the weekend news. I operated the teleprompter with my foot. I did the weather for a period of time. But I said to my news director, I, I said to my news director, I want to go to the White House one day. I was very clear with everyone that
0: that was my goal and so he said okay a lot of women have trouble vocalizing their ambition sometimes even to their selves yes but here you are in Redding, california it's not necessarily a path to 30 rock no right no i was it was a
2: long way from 30 rock <laughs>
0: <laughs> long way long from way. moderating a presidential debate. Oh, my gosh. But you're like, you had the nerve to say, raise your hand and say, I want to work really hard because I want to cover the White House. How would people react to you when you said that? So my news director, this,
2: you know, person who I owe so much to because he gave me this first shot, Gary Gunter, when he called me when I was still in New York, he said, and I quote, you're the type of person who scares the H out of me. Because you have no practical experience using a camera. All you have is passion. And how do I know that that's not going to fizzle out? And I said, I promise, I promise it won't. Please give me the job. So I got there and I did. I worked after hours to learn how to operate this camera. I was terrible at it in the beginning. I mean, I was just absolutely terrible. But I learned and I forced myself to learn. And again, I, I raised my hand because... I knew that it was the only way that I was going to start to understand politics and the way that mm-hmm. it worked. And so he said to me, he would let me go cover city council. Yeah. And one of my best memories is he said, there's a brown bag lunch at city hall today. I'd like you to cover it. I was like, okay, this is intense. <laughs> so I get there and it's literally a brown bag lunch. It's the mayor has a brown bag. Members of city hall have a of the city council rather have a brown bag and then community members. So it was probably 50 people in a room and they all brought their lunches and they talked about the issues that they wanted to address. And and on that particular day, it was are they going to build a big swimming pool? And what I was watching was, you know, literally our democratic process at work that people were voicing their concerns their criticisms, their support of this plan to build a community pool, why they thought it was good, why they were opposed to it, why they didn't want their taxpayer dollars going to that. And I just thought this is one of the most fascinating conversations. And it was centered around a very simple idea. Uh But in a way, it's the center of everything we do, which is this debate and this discourse and this back and forth. So the fact, I think that I was, vo- you have to be vocal about it. I mean, that's what I would say to your listeners. You have to raise your hand and let people know what you want to do, even when it's a decade away, because it was at that point. Right. And then I did that again in Providence, Rhode Island. And I got an interview with John McCain, the late Senator John McCain. He was coming to the state house mm-hmm. in Rhode Island to meet with the governor. And I was so nervous because he was like the first senator that I had ever interviewed. And I just remember my knees were knocking a little bit, you know, and I had my list of questions and I was standing on a step waiting for him to come (laughs) because I was going to grab him as he walked up to go meet with the governor. And he stopped and he talked to me and we did an interview. I asked him about the Iraq war and I was terrified the entire time, but I got through it. And that was a really important moment because I thought, okay, you were prepared and you asked him thoughtful questions. I don't know that it was the most newsmaking interview right. of all times, but it's also about facing your fear a little bit too. Yes. And about finding your voice and realizing that, okay, I have a voice here and my question is worthy of asking this senator or this president. And then when I got to Philadelphia, as I said, I covered the Pennsylvania primary and it was that tape that helped me get the attention of NBC News.
0: I sort of gravitate to that story you told about Senator McCain. I've had a sort of a, a similar experience where you do one scary thing that is so scary, you can't even sleep the night before. Yes. And then it gives you strength for years later to call upon because you like, well, I did that. And even though it doesn't seem like that big of a deal talking to John McCain in a relatively friendly situation on the steps of <laughs> the Rhode Island state capitol for me i think it was probably like having to speak up in the oval office and say something to the president of the united states and realize that it doesn't have to be perfect my perspective is a little different from what he's going to hear from somebody else and that's worthwhile and once you've done that you can call upon that in other moments where you're scared or where you have failed and you fail once and you keep going and you realize it's just it's part you know, a lot of, a lot of women can get paralyzed by that too yes you are a good model somebody who you have big ambitions. You vocalize them. You raise your hand. You're always looking forward, but you don't let that distract you from doing a really good job and finding the job that you, the work that you are doing, even when it's in Reading and going to the brown back lunch, rewarding and engaging. And I think sometimes people can be discouraged by what they're doing in the moment if it's not as exciting as what they want their ambitions to be. But like you or somebody who does both.
2: That's a great point, Jen. And I think like it's so important for your listeners who are just starting out to hear that and to know that, that everything doesn't have to happen in your first year or even your first five years in the workforce. And it often doesn't happen until you are a good ways in. And until you've learned some things till you've gotten knocked down a couple of times, which has happened to all of us moments of thinking, okay, I I can't do this. There's no way this was a mistake. And you have to find the inner strength to get back up and keep going and keep pursuing that dream, because certainly on the way to the White House, there were a number of times when people doubted me, when I doubted myself and part of getting there and and staying at the White House and now having this new title Mm -hmm. with Peter is is just
0: continuing to believe in myself and to do the work. Yes, the new co-chief White House correspondent. After the break, we'll talk about that role and what it's like to cover the new Biden administration. That's next with our guest, Kristen Welker, on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with NBC's Chief White House Correspondent, Kristen Welker. Okay, Welker, first things first, how is it covering the Biden White House? It's so interesting. I I just now, this
2: is the first full week, feel like I'm starting to get on top of it in the sense, uh, or organized about it is maybe the better way to say it, <laughs> yeah. because it's a new administration and it's a whole It's so disorienting. Way. Like yes. whether you're
0: a Trump supporter or not, we can all agree watching Jen Psaki right. brief as opposed to Gailey Maganini is like, oh, wow. You know what the thing is, and this
2: is true of going from former President Obama to former President Trump, every president, you know this better than anyone, every president has his or one day hers own rhythm, way of doing things. My job as a White House correspondent is to learn that and understand that. And I think, you know, under former President Trump and he would acknowledge this. It was a 24-7 news cycle. It was 24-7. So I literally would get home after having gotten to work at 6 a.m., start working on my Today Show piece, there'd be breaking news. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to rework my Today Show piece. Then it's like eight o'clock. Then there's more breaking news. Okay, I'm going to rework my Today Show piece. (laughs) Then it's 10 o'clock. And somewhere around 11 o'clock, I would have to say to my producers, I've now written four drafts of this. I'm going to have to go to bed because I'm up again at five. And former President Trump was someone who would announce policy on Twitter. And, and right. he had, by his own admission, a non-traditional way of doing things. And he was quite proud of that. President Biden is a more traditional president. And so, you know, a quick story. I came into our White House booth earlier this week and I said to Peter, do we have any information on, you know, these executive orders that President Biden's about to sign And in the next few hours? He's like, oh, did you not see the 200 pages that were released? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so it was, you know, and and that's the way the Biden administration is. I mean, they're giving us a lot of content and briefings and paper and, you know, a lot of work that we have to do and that we are doing to prepare ourselves for, you know,
0: reporting on these things. It's a lot of work. From my perspective, just like working on the circus, because before I would just look at my phone every few hours and be like, oh, OK, all right, Trump just did that. So now that's going to dominate the news. But it's all very superficial. And then what I'm finding in the Biden administration is there are like big policy changes that are happening, big policy changes that are proposed. And you have to understand what the policies are, what they're rejecting from Trump and adding on, you know, what the sort of genesis of that is. Then the politics of how it's going to be received by the public the politics of how it's going to be received by the hill and i was like whoa i gotta read a bunch of stuff that i <laughs> it's i'm reading a lot and and by the way i delved into a lot of policy under i know President you love Trump, policy but but welker loves i love policy. policy i love policy like i looked up the other day and i saw Brian Dietz, the new national campaign advisor, briefing from the podium. And I saw you in the front row and I was like, oh, my God, Walker is so excited that like she gets to talk policy. I
2: literally had about five pages of questions. (laughs) One of my colleagues on my team was texting me in one of the briefings, jokingly and lovingly saying that my posture was, oh, I'm sorry. Did you think the debate was over? The debate's not over. (laughs) (laughs) this is an extension of the
0: debate. It's a good gift to come up
2: with. Yeah, but I will just say, and I really mean this, I don't mean this in a cheesy way. Our job is always the same, like whoever's in the Oval Office, which is to find the holes and the, the inconsistencies, and especially with a new president. I mean, especially with President Biden has just made all these promises to the American people. And so job number one for us, we are in the middle of 10 different crises right now is yeah. holding him to account for those promises. And how is he going to realize those? How's he going to achieve those? How's he going to get this $1.9 trillion economic relief package, COVID relief package, I should say?
0: What's in the $1.9 trillion?
2: What's in it? Right. And what does it mean if he doesn't get bipartisan support?
0: One more thing that I wanted to say about you there that it just speaks so well of you. I did not know that you went to Harvard until the debate. Really? Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't you, talk about it. You don't ever talk about it. No, I feel like everybody I know that I that I know went to Harvard. Like, <laughs> lets me know that it's they like went, to went, to, went to Harvard. I went to Harvard. I was like, we're just reading <laughs> the story about you. It was like I was like, well, I went to Harvard. How did Cambridge deal with Welk NATO?
2: <laughs> I loved Harvard.
0: Yeah, it intimidated me at first, mm-hmm.
2: but then you know, like everything, you get into a rhythm with it. But I was definitely intimidated at first, but. Then, you know, a couple of tests and classes in, I got my
0: footing, which yeah. is basically what happened at the, the White House. It's basically that just repeats itself. Yeah. That seems like a good place to stop. This was fantastic. Thank you, Jen. I hope you got everything. This was a great conversation. It was right. So wasn't great. it a good conversation?
2: You're a wonderful interviewer.
0: Oh, it's so nice. Thanks. We
2: should get you a show on on MSNBC.
1: Sarah, are you there? Yes, I am. So I told you. (laughs) I know you did tell me. She's really awesome. So inspiring.
0: Yeah, I thought that was a I thought that was a fantastic um, conversation. And I hope it's helpful to people. Well, you tell me first what, what stood out to you.
1: There were a few things. I think it was super helpful as a woman who was trying to make her way through her career. Just like there, we're always going to have like big events, big meetings, big presentations. And if you just prepare for those beginning few moments, which is when your are you know, your heart starts racing and you get nervous. And if you trip up then, oftentimes it throws you off. And I loved how she gave us her whole routine for debate prep. She was like, I'm just going to go through the motions. I've practiced these first five minutes a million times. It just feels like a routine. It's not scary. And then I just felt calm and comfortable. And I loved that. I'm going to hone in on that when I have big events in my life as well.
0: It was a good hack for a stressful situation. But what I also thought was good was when she talked about interviewing John McCain on the steps of the Rhode Island State Capitol and that she was really nervous. You know, I, I find that if you do one scary thing, you can lean on that experience to give you confidence in ways you didn't expect. I mean, obviously, moderating a presidential debate is the extreme extreme vision. Yeah. and, And and pretty far away from just talking to a United States senator on the Capitol steps. But I think she's right that, you know, once you conquer one fear, hold on to that. Know that that means you can conquer harder things. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so much about ambition. I mean, imagine—I mean, you were—you were a local news person. Imagine telling the news director in Redding, California, "I want this job, and then I'm going to become a White House correspondent." I know. And I think a lot of women don't want to voice their own ambition. And she did it not just to herself. She said it out loud. She said it to people for whom it would seem preposterous, and she got it done.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of women are scared to invoice their ambitions or a lot of people in general, just because you're afraid of failure. You don't want to put it yeah. on record and then have it not um, come to fruition. But one thing I thought was so cool about Kristen is like, it wasn't just that she put it out in the world and then left it there. She really made it happen for herself. I think that's so awesome.
0: What I also really appreciate about her is that while she is ambitious and has the eyes on the prize, what she ultimately wants, she doesn't let that distract her from learning from and appreciating what she's doing in real time. I mean, I just Mm -hmm. love that story about the, the brown bag, brown bag lunch, lunch. <laughs> the yeah. brown bag lunch that she went to in running, where she's like, so, you know, the news director's like, you get to cover the brown bag lunch. And she's like, <laughs> yes, like, this is my big break. But moreover, she sees like, oh, this is actually it. This is happening. It doesn't just happen at the White House.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have so many moments like that where I'd go to like city council meetings in Appleton, Wisconsin, and I'd be like, this is a very small version of what's happening on a national stage but yeah i thought the lessons that she had for women really expand beyond the journalism industry and i'm really excited for everyone to hear it
0: yay i'm glad you liked it too that's great this is just something about her a podcast from the recount and iheartradio Thank you to Kristen Welker for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri, Aaliyah Jackson, and D. Scott Carroll engineer this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.